Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome. This is Tom Balga from Yale New Haven Hospital. Welcome to another episode of Yale Emergency Medicine Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Evie Marcolini. She is double board certified in emergency medicine and neurocritical care. She's also the medical director of Sky Health Critical Care here at Yale. Today, we're going to be talking about the workup for sudden onset severe headache with a focus on not missing subarachnoid hemorrhage. Dr. Marcolini, as far as who is at risk for subarachnoid hemorrhages? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Hey, welcome. Um, yeah, the, the people who are at risk for subarachnoid hemorrhage, the risk factors that we like to think about are um, hypertension, pa patients who smoke, patients who are heavy alcohol drinkers, those who use cocaine. Um, women are more prominent than men. And anybody with a family history of cerebrovascular disease, patients with postmenopausal state, uh, polycystic kidney disease, and type 4 Ehlers-Danlos. All right. Great. So a lot of those uh, connective tissue disorders also put you at risk. Um, and also, can you tell us about um, when, when we look at patients that we've missed or other folks have missed in the past, what are some things that folks get uh, misguided on and go down the wrong path? Very interesting question. There was a nice study that was uh, published in 2004 by Kowalski that looked at who are we missing and why are we missing the subarachnoid hemorrhage diagnosis. And what they showed us was that the most common mistake and the reason we miss is we don't do a CAT scan. And I think that's interesting because back many years ago, I think the mantra was with a sudden onset headache, if you're thinking of subarachnoid, you got a CT and an LP. These days, there's a lot more resistance to getting a lumbar puncture. Part of that is the obvious reasons why people don't want to have a lumbar puncture or do a lumbar puncture. But part of it is also that we have so much more advanced technology. Our imaging has really come a long way. And so people are tending to lean more on the imaging than they are on the lumbar puncture. And this study showed that we miss a significant amount of subarachnoid hemorrhage patients on the first visit with their sudden onset severe headache. And um, the, the, the way that we can think about this is, number one, putting it in our, uh, our, diag our differential, yeah. thinking about it, and then getting the CT and following it with the LP, which is, as of now, our current standard of care. So are you saying that folks are not ordering a, C a regular head CT at all, or they're relying on a, a non-contrast CT scan as being definitive? Well, in the study in 2004, they weren't ordering the CT at all. And this was a study that looked at patients who went to emergency departments, urgent care centers, mm -hmm. private physicians, uh, it, the whole gamut. But the most patients who were missed actually went to the emergency department. And and I think in, in our minds, we have this thinking of, if I get the CT, I'm going to be faced with that question, do I need to get the LP? And I'm extrapolating yeah. from the study. I can't mm -hmm. really be right. sure why people didn't get CT, but it was one of the highest percentage of reasons why we missed those subarachnoid hemorrhages. So that's very interesting. So we have a lot more urgent cares that are out there now. 
And the urgent cares that are out there are both EM folks, both attendings and PAs, and folks that are not in emergency medicine. And so there's a lot of uh, patients out there that really do not like going to the ED, and they have a large variety of age. So maybe that could also be part of it, where folks are not going to the ED as much for a headache. They go to urgent care. Urgent care is trying to risk stratify them, and maybe there's some opportunity there as well. You're absolutely right. I see so many patients who come to the emergency department after they've been to an urgent care yesterday, the day before, or even the same day. And I think that when we think about subarachnoid hemorrhage, and we'll talk about how do you diagnose this or how do you not miss this diagnosis, this can be done anywhere. It can be done in an urgent care center. It can be done in a private office or in the emergency department. Yeah, that's great. And the other thing I was thinking of as well is so if I'm in the ED and I see a patient uh, for a headache, uh, I might be a little reluctant to do a head CT because then I'm thinking the LP is to be followed. And so maybe folks are not even getting there so they don't have to even address that issue. Uh, so let's talk about the LP in general. Uh, I've been practicing for 17, 18 years now. And earlier in my career, we did so many LPs, literally hundreds and hundreds of LPs. And I find today it's really hard to get our new PAs up and running with uh, lumbar puncture. So one, let, let's begin with just consent and talking with the patient about consent and what we're about to do as far as a lumbar puncture. And with that being said, we're trying to give the patient an accurate amount of information about risks, benefits, and alternatives, right? Very basic, but I find that Often, we go in with a preconceived idea of, no, let's just try to talk them out of it. So what I try to do is I try to explain to the patient that when we do the lumbar puncture, we're going to give them a medicine to kind of relax them, what the LP will consist of, uh, because there's also a lot of myths to that. Can you speak to some of that? I think you bring up a lot of good points, and and the first point being that we do go into this consent process with our own preconceived notions. We can say to a patient, your head CT was negative. It didn't show any blood. And the next step should be a lumbar puncture. And that's going to entail sticking a long needle in your back. And, and, right. and what, what yeah. we're doing is taking yeah. them down the pathway of, of declining the opportunity Correct. to have a yes. lumbar puncture. So first we need to, to have in our minds what is the proper workup for the sudden onset severe headache? And if the patient has a sudden onset severe headache, we are, it's our standard of care from the ASEP guidelines, American Heart Association and Stroke mm -hmm. Association, to do a lumbar puncture. And so we need to be comfortable in that in our own minds before we approach the patient. And in talking with the patient about anything regarding Sudden onset, severe, sudden onset severe headache or subarachnoid hemorrhage, um, shared decision-making is really important. Mm -hmm. And that starts with telling them what we're worried about. And you, you say that we used to do a lot of lumbar punctures. I think you're right. I, in, in my residency program, we did a lot of lumbar punctures. And now, as, as we talked about earlier, I think yeah. people are steering away from it for many reasons and not all of them great reasons. The, the data shows us that if you get a CT that's negative and a lumbar puncture that's done appropriately and interpreted appropriately, that is the most sensitive test process 
for ruling out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So we have to be confident yeah. in that and understand that and understand the limitations of it. And when approaching the patient, I'll tell you, in all the lumbar punctures that I've done and seen, the patients always say, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was, right. which to me yeah. is intriguing. I'll be honest, I've never had a lumbar puncture. Yeah. Um, it doesn't sound that great, but all of my experience has been that patients really don't mind it as much as the thought of it. So that's the first thing. And we do have to explain the complications that can occur, the rare complications. Mm -hmm. And they are rare, but there are bleeding, pain, allergic reaction to medications we give them, nerve damage, and that post-dural headache right. that we see so often. Um, and we should explain that to them. And that should be explained in the setting of why we feel it's necessary to do it. And when we're consenting somebody for lumbar puncture, I think it's really important to understand the risk of missing a subarachnoid hemorrhage, because that's mm -hmm. probably the thing that most drives us to do this the right way. And to talk about that a little bit, yeah, um, somebody comes in with a sudden onset severe headache. All the headaches we see in the department, every day 1% of patients who come in have a headache. That's why they came. 1% okay. of those patients will have a, sudden, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Half of those patients hmm. will have a completely normal neuro exam. So these are the patients that are going to be difficult to find. This diagnosis is really like a needle in the haystack. So when we're talking about this with patients, we have to explain to them, if you have a subarachnoid hemorrhage right now, if you have an aneurysm that ruptured and you have blood that's causing your headache, your mortality is 25% right yeah. now. Probably they did well because they're yeah. in the department seeing you. If we wait about two weeks, your mortality goes up to about 40%. But if that aneurysm re-ruptures within that time, your mortality goes up to 70%. Wow. That's why it's yeah. so important. And, and I, I talk about this as a very low-frequency, high-acuity problem. And the reason it's so troublesome and the reason we have so many different tests to try to get to it and so much literature written about it is that it's low-frequency, high-acuity. So if somebody has it and we miss it and it re-ruptures, we're really doing them a disservice because they face a much higher morbidity and mortality because we missed it. If we catch okay. it, yep. then they, they can do well. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's great. So let's just talk about when you are consenting them for the LP, um, the lumbar puncture. One thing that I've done in my practice, and you can tell me this is good or bad or whatever your thoughts on it, is I talk to them before we get the uh, head CT that even if the head CT is negative, this is going to be our next step just to let them know ahead of time that this, this is probably how this is going to unfold. It's, it'll probably be negative, and then we'll have to do the lumbar puncture. Can you speak to that? I agree with you. I do the same thing. Okay. Because when I make the decision to put the patient in the pathway, and this is the pathway of diagnosing or ruling out a subarachnoid hemorrhage, I've decided that once they have the right kind of headache. 
and I say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get a CAT scan, and, and it's probably going to be negative because most of them really are. If that's negative, then we move on to the lumbar puncture. Now, I got to say, just to, to take yeah. a step back, when you're talking about lumbar puncture and that we do far fewer of them, one of the things we should think about is the subarachnoid hemorrhage is not the only thing we find on lumbar puncture. We find right. many other diagnoses, and we don't want to forget about that because right. the, the, the severe headache has a wide differential, which we're not going to talk about Correct. here, yeah. but, but yeah. we should just understand it's not only the subarachnoid bleed we're looking for. Right. There's a lot more you can get out of the lumbar puncture. So let's talk about, just again, take a step back a little bit. Let's talk about the history, because here is a very important time to take a good history, uh, sit down and kind of not worry about throughput as much with this patient and sit down and get a good history. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. It, it, in my opinion, we will do far fewer lumbar punctures for our patients if we take a good history. And the way I think about it is, who am I putting in the pathway? And the pathway, with right. quotes around it, is that pathway of the patient I'm worried about a subarachnoid bleed. And there's two questions that I focus on. The first question is sudden onset or gradual onset. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. This is not a stand at the foot of the bed with the checklist and saying, yeah. did you have a thunderclap headache? Check. No, you didn't. This is sitting down next to the patient and saying, tell me about your headache. And they will tell you a story if you let them. Mm -hmm. And the, the first question that I focus on is the onset. Was it sudden or was it gradual? Now, if you look at the literature, sudden onset is defined as within 60 minutes. But we know that it's really less time than that. Yeah. And we just completed a study that's going to be published soon that looked at subarachnoid hemorrhage patients and going back, interviewing them and asking them, how long did it take for your headache to go from nothing to really severe? And we gave them increments of zero to five seconds, uh, zero to 15 seconds, a minute, two minutes, and they all said it was within a minute. Now, that's okay. one study, yeah. and it's retrospective, but we know that it's more sudden than that. The way that I approach this is I ask the patient, what were you doing when the headache started? Mm -hmm. Because the patients don't really appreciate so much why we want to know about sudden versus gradual, but they will remember what they were doing when the headache started. So when I ask them that and they tell me, I'm listening with my filter of, was this sudden or gradual? With the goal of asking mm -hmm. myself, do I need to put them in the pathway? The second question is, what kind of headache was it? Was it severe? Was it the classic worst headache of life? Was it sudden, you know, just the worst headache they ever had? And this is a little more tricky sometimes because some patients will come in, they have a migraine once or twice a week, and they're coming in because their migraine is worse than usual or it lasts longer than usual. That's not the headache we're looking for. Some patients will come in and say, I've never had a headache before, and now I'm having a really bad headache. That's the person we're looking for. So you have to let them tell you about their headache and then decide, is this a different, unique, severe headache that I, that okay. I think warrants putting them in the pathway? And th this part, to me, this part is the most important part of our diagnostic strategy because if we're more accurate about who we put in the pathway, we'll end up doing fewer lumbar punctures and we'll be more accurate with them. Great. No, it's very helpful. So 
You mentioned when patients have a history of uh, headaches, and I find them very difficult to kind of sort out. So when you have a patient that has a history of migraine, I commonly will ask them, you know, how is this? Is this the same as your migraines, or is this different? And if they say, oh, it just it's it's much worse, I try to have them clarify what does that mean? It's worse. Um, is the sensation of the headache, the location, and other descriptors different, or is this just a really bad migraine? Do you have any other tips about sorting out the migraine patients from subarachnoid hemorrhage patients? Yeah, that is tricky. Um, and really, what I like to ask them is, tell me about your typical migraine. And most migrainers know what their typical migraine is. Yeah. If it's different from their typical, then I'm thinking about okay. going down the pathway. If it's if they describe it as being the same, and they'll usually yeah. be good about telling you, this is this is similar to my typical migraine, it's just lasting longer, or I didn't get on top of it early enough with my medication regimen or something like that. Okay. Yeah, no, that's great. And what about uh, neck pain, neck stiffness, headaches that radiate to one side of the neck or the other? Uh, I find that sometimes that could be helpful. Uh, your thoughts on neck pain and neck stiffness? Yeah, neck pain certainly can be present. And neck pain, neck stiffness is definitely worth asking about. If somebody has neck pain and stiffness, I'm actually thinking about a dissection. I'm mm -hmm. thinking about other vascular issues that could be going on. So it's it's good to ask about that. And I wouldn't rule anybody out because they have neck pain instead right. of headache or but I would put it in my put yeah. it in my grab bag of, of things that I'm asking and, and thinking about. I also would still keep them in the pathway if they had neck pain. Okay, great. And you mentioned dissection. So I'm thinking aortic dissection, vertebral dissection. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, we are seeing patients who are younger and having strokes as a result of dissections. And I don't know if this is anecdotal or not, yeah. um, but you can have a vertebral dissection with some posterior stroke signs and it can be quite challenging because the patient can come in with something as interesting as nausea and vomiting and dizziness. Okay. And they end up having that from a vertebral artery dissection. Um, they could have a sudden onset with that as well. And it's, it's something that we need to think about whenever we're thinking about headache right. or neck pain. And some of these patients don't have any neck pain at all when they come in with a vertebral artery dissection. Okay. So I think if we think generally in a vascular thought process and ask ourselves, patient comes in with a headache or they come in with stroke symptoms or they come in with um, complaints that could be vascular, we should ask ourselves, could this be vascular? Could this be something vascular? Yeah. And if you ask yourself that question, now you're already thinking about it. Whereas if the patient just comes in with nausea, vomiting, and they say, I think I have food poisoning, if you don't even think about vascular, mm -hmm. you're not going to go there. But if you think about it, I'm not saying every right. time you'll yeah. answer the question yes, but if you think about it, then you are less likely to miss it. Great. And speaking of vascular, the other thing I really try to always think about is ocular changes, visual changes. There's other problems you could have with your vision that could be a signal that it might be your brain. Can you speak to that? Yes. Uh, vision changes are important to think about with and thinking about vascular territories and thinking about neural territories. 
and you can have um, you can have a retinal artery occlusion. You can have something in the posterior regions of the brain that can affect vision. It should be part of every neuro exam. Okay. And both uh, past family history is important and also social history. Uh, I usually ask about any family history of aneurysms. Sometimes folks know, sometimes they're, they really are not really sure. And then what part of the family is important um, and uh, which relatives are important as far as having a history of aneurysms. And they also get this confused with other type of vascular issues. This is true. I think family history is important if you do have somebody who has the story of a subarachnoid hemorrhage or a severe onset, su sudden onset severe headache, and they have somebody in the family history has some kind of vascular issues, like Ehlers-Danlos, for instance, or they know that somebody who's closely tied in their family tree had an aneurysm that ruptured. That's important, and, yeah. and that sort of leads us down the pathway as well. Some people, you're right, they don't know. They say, yeah. my grandfather died of some kind of a, a neuro problem, and I don't know what it was. And that's not very helpful because you don't want to ascribe that necessarily to an aneurysm when you don't, when you don't know. Right, yeah. yeah. So uh, physical examination. So this is on the list of folks that can look great and have something devastating. Um, so can you speak to both general physical exam and vital signs and how folks can look great and have something devastating? Yeah, that physical exam with any kind of a neuro patient is really important. And it's not only important to do the head-to-toe physical mm -hmm. exam, but the neuro exam especially important. And when we're thinking about somebody with a headache, they fall into the neuro exam category, and we have to do the complete neuro exam, which includes not only focality, you know, focal yeah. weakness, et cetera, of the anterior territory, but we need to think about the posterior territory. We need to get the patients up and walk them. Can they do a tandem gait? Do they have a Romberg sign? And, and really go through the paces. Um, we talk about, with subarachnoid hemorrhage, we talk about the Hunt and Hess scale. Okay. And the patients from the Kowalski paper that we were discussing earlier, the patients that we most likely miss are the ones who have Hunt and Hess 1 and 2. Now, Hunt and Hess is a 1 through 5 scale, and the 1 and 2 are the most mild symptoms. Hunt Hess talks about what does the patient look like when they come through the door clinically. So a, a Hunt Hess 1 is an asymptomatic patient with minimal headache, maybe some slight nuchal rigidity. Hunt has two, has a moderate to severe headache, nuchal rigidity, but no neuro deficits except maybe a third nerve palsy. Okay. So c you can yeah, see yeah. how these are the patients we're going to miss. This is the classic. This is the person who comes in with a headache and their neuro exam really doesn't show you much. Um, once you get to, to Hunt has three, the patient's drowsy, confused, or has a mild focal deficit. That's okay. easy. Yeah. That's easy. Yeah. We get a CT. Right. We go through the motions. But it's it, the hunt has scale was developed so that neurosurgeons could um, gauge the patient as to how severe they were and when they should take them to angio, et cetera. And what it, how it helps us today is in predicting how they'll do. It sort of predicts outcome. And if we think about Hunt and Hess in the emergency department, and, and 
we're seeing a patient with a headache and we say, well, where are they on the Hunt-Hess scale? And just yeah. thinking about that, you say, well, they have a minimal headache and they have no nuchal rigidity. They're Hunt-Hess 1. Oh, that means I'm more likely to miss the diagnosis. So I need to be vigilant and go through the motion of how I rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. So the exam okay. is important. Yeah. The neuro exam has to be complete. Don't forget yep. to look for nystagmus. Look for everything because this could be something other than a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. It could be a stroke. Yeah. Great. And there's an article in the BMJ about head CT in the six-hour rule. Um, I know there's a few things you have to make sure you have down, and one is uh, accurate timing, which can be challenging. Uh, can you speak to that rule or that article? It was in the BMJ. Yes, that's a very popular article by Perry. And they came out and said, if you get a CT within six hours of the onset of the headache, you can rule out subarachnoid bleed with 100% sensitivity. Everybody got really excited yeah. about that. How easy is that, right? You just get the yeah. CT, there's no blood, send the patient home. It sort of theoretically would take away this whole conundrum that we have. Right. However, if you, look at the, if you look at the data in the study, they used several criteria, one of which is um, that it has to be done on an advanced level CT scanner. Um, it has to be accurate timing. You have to know that it's within six hours. Um, it can have the, no meningismus, no neck pain mm -hmm. or meningismus because of how they collected the data. A normal neuro exam, and we just talked about a complete right. normal neuro exam, um, no motion artifact. The cuts on the scan were less than five millimeters. The hematocrit of the patients was greater than 30% because if your hematocrit is less than 30%, you may not have enough blood to show up on the CT. And the reading radiologist has to be somebody who looks at these every day, somebody who's yeah. very comfortable reading brain CTs. Doesn't necessarily need to be a neuroradiologist, okay. but somebody who's comfortable with them. And you have to say to them, I'm thinking about subarachnoid bleed. I've got a patient with a sudden onset severe headache so that they're clued into it. And in that, all of those criteria, even with that being met, there were one to two in a thousand patients who were, who were missed. And okay. you say, why are you drilling down to the details so finely like this? We don't dissect yeah. other studies like this that we apply to our practice in the emergency department. What's so unique about this? And I take you back to the concept that this is a low-frequency, high-acuity problem. So we, if we're going to use this tool, and I'm not saying you can't use this tool, but if you're going to use it, you need to apply the criteria that they applied when they derived it. Yeah. And that's really yeah. important. And some people will have the access to third-generation scanners mm -hmm. or better access to a neuroradiologist or somebody who reads them every day. But if you don't, it's really important to recognize that and say, well, I could still miss this. I could yeah. still miss this. And I've had patients come in who say, I want, I, I know about this study and I want to get a CT and call it done because it's within six hours. And I remember one yeah. patient that came in like this and I said, okay, we can do that, but here are the limitations to that just so you understand the limitations. And when you walk out the door, I can't with 100% confidence tell you that you don't have subarachnoid blood. Okay. And so yeah. that's part of this whole yeah. thing is, is disclosing to patients what their risks and what the limitations are of our testing. 
Yeah, and if you're a provider out there and you're going to use this rule, it might be important to also make sure that in your documentation, whether it's a smart phrase or whatever, that you actually address each one of these items. You know, no evidence of anemia, H and H and such and such. We um, the timing, no neck pain. And the other decision rule that's out there that's very exciting is the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage uh, clinical decision rule. One thing I noticed on this rule, though, is the age of 40. Uh, can you speak to this rule and whether you think it's something that's uh, going to be for prime time? Yeah, this, this rule is getting a lot of airplay okay. lately. Yeah. Um, and it's done again by the Perry folks, the Perry team up in okay. Canada, yeah. who, who give us many other clinical right. decision rules that we love and we use. Um, this rule has a very high sensitivity, but its downfall is that it has a very low specificity. And so you point out age over 40. The way to use this rule is that when you look at the criteria, which are age over 40, neck pain or stiffness, witness loss of consciousness, onset with exertion, thunderclap headache, meaning instantly peaking pain, and limited neck flexion. If any one of these criteria is present, that means you should put them in the pathway and try to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. If all of these criteria are not met, if, if you don't yeah. meet any of the criteria, then you can rule the patient out. Okay. And that's how the, 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 the test should be used. And if you use it that way, as you quite astutely pointed out, every 40-year-old or, or higher yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, with a headache is going to go in the pathway, which yeah. we don't necessarily need to do. And... Um, it, it, it's very interesting. I, I think that, in reality, if we use this clinical decision rule and all the criteria are not met and we use that in conjunction with our other tools, we'll be using it safely. But it doesn't really, if you use this just as yeah. is, you're going to end up doing more lumbar punctures than fewer. Right, okay. Yeah. And um, the CTA, can you talk about the... CTA in today's world, whether we should be using it, shouldn't be using it, or do you think there's going to be a future for it? Uh, we use it a lot for other things. Uh, can you just speak to the CTA? It's a very good question. This this is probably the most controversial part of the diagnostic strategy. So many people um, are using CTA in their strategy, and um, so many so many people come up to me and say, I just get a CT. If it's negative, I get a CTA. If that's negative, then mm -hmm. I send them home. So here's the thinking. You get a CT non-con, it's negative, you don't see any blood. You get a CTA looking for an aneurysm, and you don't see an aneurysm and you send the patient home. Intuitively, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Because I'm looking for blood, I'm looking for an aneurysm that ruptured. However, there's pitfalls in this strategy. The first pitfall is that a CTA is not 100% sensitive. You can miss aneurysms that are less than 3 millimeters. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, what's the big deal? We miss PE that's subsegmental, and it's clinically not that important. Why do we care? Well, again, a 2-millimeter aneurysm that ruptures can be devastating. It's yeah. not like that super yeah. small PE. This is a different story. This is, this is something that's really small that can cause big disaster. Yeah. That's the first problem with it. The second problem is if you find an aneurysm on that CTA, 
it's not necessarily true that that aneurysm bled. Okay. Two percent of people have aneurysms. We're walking around yeah. with aneurysms. That doesn't mean they're going to bleed. Doesn't mean mm -hmm. that it did bleed if you find it. But if you find it, now you're probably going to go down the pathway of procedures and complications that are unnecessary. Or the patient now knows that they have an aneurysm, and every time they get a headache, they're going to think, yeah. oh, that, right. <laughs> my aneurysm blew, uh, and, and, and it causes yeah. angst. Right, and they'll be back. False positive information, yeah. And the third part is that when you're using a CT non-contrast, you're looking for blood. When you're using a CTA, you're looking for an aneurysm. Those are two divergent strategies. Okay. And when you're looking for subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is what we are looking for, you need to stay consistent with your strategies and continue looking for blood because that's the way to rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Okay. That's great. All right. Let's talk about lumbar puncture again because I just think it's so important to review this in, in a little bit more detail, a.k.a. the spinal tap as patients commonly know it as. So... In the ED, we do lots of procedures, but I think this is one procedure that we really need to do, one, a timeout, and then two, consent. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, it's important to, to consent the patient for the lumbar puncture, and as, as we talked, to yeah. explain to them, number one, why we want to do it, why we think it's important, and what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, and what the complications could be. And, okay. th and that's really important. Okay. And so as we're doing the uh, lumbar puncture, um, some folks like to have them sitting up. Some folks like to have them laying down. Is there any positions that you, for, for patients doing the LP, that you prefer? or? I pre Personally, I prefer the sitting up, okay. but it, it does also depend on the patient. Some yeah. patients aren't able to sit up and... and uh, hunch over that bedside table. And, yeah. and so then it, I don't, I'm not aware of any data that says one position is better than the other okay. to uh, success of the lumbar puncture. And for our newer folks that are doing LPs, you know, positioning is everything. So if you're having, if you're struggling at all, you know, for me, just, it's all about how the patient's positioned. Uh, you should have somebody at the bedside with you. You should have everything set up including an extra needle and, and also your backup. Know that whether it's your attending or another attending, that you have a quick backup if you need that. Um, and as far as xanthochromia, uh, can you speak to how some labs do the testing and what we're looking for in xanthochromia and some of the pitfalls with it? Absolutely. When we get the lumbar puncture, we're looking, we are always looking for a champagne tap. Right? We want yeah. four tubes of, of clear CSF. We don't want any blood. However, oftentimes we get blood. And when there's blood, we need to understand whether that's subarachnoid blood or whether it's blood from a traumatic tap. Did we go through a blood vessel on our mm -hmm. way into the CSF? And the way we typically do that is look for the number of red blood cells in tube one compared to tube four. And if tube four red blood cells are significantly lower than tube one, then we lean towards thinking this was a traumatic tap and we're okay with that. Now, the number has been looked at 
over the years in many different ways, yeah. trying to figure out, okay, what number is good enough for us? And we've, up until now, we haven't had anything good, a good tool to use to say, this decrease in red blood cells is good enough to say that's a traumatic tap. We now have something that I think is very useful. And we talked earlier about the Ottawa clinical decision rule. Mm -hmm. When the Perry Group was making that clinical decision rule, they took data from that. They had 4,000 patients in, okay. in deriving that rule, and they took data from that and used um, logistical regression and looked at how can we tell which patients have a traumatic tap versus true subarachnoid blood. And they came up with a, a tool that they've published. They published this in 2015, I think. And they said, in tube four, if you have fewer than 2,000 times 10 to the 6 red blood cells and no xanthochromia, it's 100% sensitive. Hmm. Wow. That's okay. useful. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the useful. first useful tool <laughs> that we've <coughs> seen that helps us figure out traumatic tap versus subarachnoid hemorrhage. So now let's talk about xanthochromia, though. Yeah. Because 97, 98% of the labs in our country use visual inspection to look for xanthochromia, which simply okay. means they take the test tube of CSF, they hold it up next to a test tube of water in front of a white piece of paper, and yep. they ask the question, hmm, are these colors different? Yeah. That's the wow. test that we That's use. And it's not that sensitive or specific, right. but it is what we use. Now, people have asked, why, won't, why don't we use spectrophotography um, mm -hmm. to look at this? I don't know a good answer why we don't use that. It could be that the, the, the lab equipment is too expensive or it's just hard to come by. But also, in the data that I've looked at with folks using spectrophotography to look at CSF, it wasn't that much better huh. than the visual inspection. So it sounds fancier, and yeah. you would think, oh, it must be, must be better but it's not necessarily that much better. So that's what we okay. use. Now, the other thing about xanthochromia that we should appreciate as a limitation is if it's been less than 12 hours from the onset of the headache to the, the performance of the lumbar puncture, it may not have been enough time for xanthochromia to develop. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a limitation yeah. there too. There are some places that admit somebody so that they're getting the tap after 12 hours. We don't do that, and I don't really know that many folks who do. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. How about the, the patient that comes in and has a headache, came on sudden, uh, occurred like, you know, two days ago, they needed to go to work or whatever, and then they're in front of you, and they really don't want to do the LP. Uh, you kind of go through all your... Uh, risk, benefits, alternatives, but yet they're adamant. They've heard bad things about it. They've heard about a bad case or whatever, and they really don't want it. So what, what are some other options for us besides having them sign out AMA? Good question, because we do run into these patients. And my first, my first advice is, number one, work with the patient. You have to um, use shared decision-making and some people would argue we can't use shared decision-making because this is highly complicated, and how would the patients ever really understand the yeah. nuances of this? And I disagree with that. I think that's part of the art 
of emergency medicine and all of medicine is meeting the patients where they are, understanding what they understand, and knowing how to explain the risks and benefits to them in a way that they will understand. And in talking with patients, we will come to appreciate their risk-taking behavior, the, the risk-taking that they want to take. I mean, we okay. see patients yeah. all the time who are adamantly against taking any risk at all. Yeah. They want everything scanned and MRI. And, and, but we also yeah. see patients who, who are risk-takers, and they might say, well, okay, I understand the risks, but I'm, I'm willing to go home and, and deal with that. So the first part is talking with them and, and understanding and explaining it and documenting that. Um, the second part is knowing what other tools you may have. And I tell folks, don't ever hesitate to bring in your neurology or neurosurgery colleagues. Okay. And there are times when you can take a patient who adamantly does not want a lumbar puncture, bring in neurosurgery, and they may decide to use some other form of imaging. They may decide that this case is significantly risky enough that they will do a, an angio, a okay. CT angio, yeah. a, a true angio, or, or they may help in that decision-making. Just having somebody else from neuro or neurosurgery come and talk with the patient oftentimes is helpful. And, um, and it's helpful to us as well because yeah. we're, we're sharing this diagnostic dilemma. If the patient simply doesn't want to get the lumbar puncture or they don't want to go on with the diagnostic strategy, then I explain it to them and I document what I explained and I encourage them to come back. Okay. We, I think we often fall into the trap of, of thinking of signing people out AMA as they're not doing what I want them to yeah. do and, and we, we get a little antagonistic about that. And I think we need to remember that patients are free agents and they're consulting yeah. us, and they don't necessarily have to take our advice. But as long as we explain to them and document what we explained, and we feel that they do understand the risks, I think it's fine. Yeah, and I welcome them back. I yeah. give them clear discharge instructions. And the other thing I'll do is either I'll call them back myself personally just to see how they're doing, also welcome them back again, or we have a system we can have our follow-up nurse call them back and say, hey, we know you are in ED last night. How are you doing? Just wanted to kind of follow up with you. You're welcome to come back. Because I feel that we take it, we may take it a little personally. And I always tell patients, A, first of all, I treat you like I treat my family. This is what I recommend. But if you don't want to do that, I understand. And I clearly welcome you back even five minutes from now. You change your mind, work something out, come back and see me. I'll help you get through the system. I agree with you. I think that's a great touch. And I think in the busy emergency departments that you and I work in, we, we don't focus so much on the follow-up, and, mm. and it's completely available for us to pick up the phone the next day and call somebody or have our follow-up nurse, who are amazing, call them and just check in. Yeah. Yeah, great. This has been awesome. Uh, I really appreciate you coming out and spending the morning with us kind of going over subarachnoid hemorrhage, but I think it's a really important topic, and I appreciate your help. Thank you. Thanks, Tom, for having me.